0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What's next for the state now that voters have decided issues connected to taxes and budget? Then the Colorado GOP took a walloping in the U.S. Senate race and in the presidential race here. So where is the party headed and what does Lauren Boebert's win in the third CD tell us about the president's influence in the state? Also, how communities and hospitals are responding to the growing number of COVID-19 cases in Colorado. Plus, we take a ride on a time-traveling bicycle through the history of Grand
1: Junction. We wanted it to be antiquated so that it was historically old, but at the same time futuristically kind of charming.
2: The upcoming elections could be the most crucial in recent memory, and that means Colorado Public Radio has an even greater responsibility to help you separate facts from fiction. Your financial support ensures that unbiased, fact-based journalism is delivered to Colorado voters, so we can all make informed decisions when filling out our ballots. Thank you for making the leap from listener to listener member at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. If you believe in limited government, Colorado voters gave you something to celebrate Tuesday night. If you believe in preserving government funding, they also agreed with you. And if you just wanted to know what voters were thinking, well, you might still be scratching your head. To walk us through this financial maze, along with the measures that dealt with everything from wildlife to the electoral college that's burning a hole in everyone's mind right now, I'm joined by Colorado House Speaker Casey Becker, a Democrat from Boulder. Speaker, welcome. Thank you for having me, Avery. I mentioned the Electoral College, so let's talk for a minute about the presidential election, still in limbo. Given how close it is and the divisions in the country, if Mr. Biden wins, will it be difficult for him to govern?
3: I don't think it's going to be difficult for him to govern. From the start of his campaign, his message really has been about unity and bringing people together And uh, governing not only the people who voted for you, but the people who didn't. And I think that's going to be a primary motivation for his campaign is to really uh, get the country um, feeling more unified and less divided.
0: Now, let's talk a bit about those financial measures in Colorado. We'll get into specifics shortly on the surface it looks like there are some contradictions. Voters lowered the income tax rate, but agreed to contribute a larger amount of their incomes to a paid family leave program. What's your takeaway here? Is there a message you've gleaned from what voters did in Colorado?
3: You know, there were quite a few ballot measures in general, and certainly quite a few that were focused on financial issues. And I think it's hard to uh, look at them all as sort of one theme. I think people weighed ballot measures on that specific ballot measure. In, in one instance, they said, we wanna reduce state income tax. In another instance, they said, we are okay repealing a measure that gave us automatic property tax cuts. But I think people were weighing them individually based on you know, what they were hearing from the campaigns. I want to talk about the three financial measures. Let's talk about them in detail.
0: Starting with Amendment B, which also passed, it repeals the Gallagher Amendment, a part of the state constitution that has regulated property taxes for decades. At a bare bones level, this will mean that people who pay residential property taxes will forego automatic decreases in their tax rate. Opponents say that it will cause property tax bills to rise more quickly. You supported repeal, as did many of your Republican colleagues. What was your pitch to voters to do this?
3: Amendment B, the repeal of the Gallagher uh, Constitutional Amendment from 1982, I thought should be repealed partly because uh, there just shouldn't be um, formulas in our state constitution. I think that uh, Amendment B, the Gallagher Amendment may have been right for the time in 1982, but it's worn out its usefulness. And I think we need something that uh, is more regionally focused and regionally based. It was interesting to see here that there was broad bipartisan support in the legislature for putting this on the ballot. Uh, There were folks in the business community who were very supportive because right now the bulk of property taxes are paid by small businesses and commercial properties. And then there were folks who were really concerned in rural areas about how automatics, automatic uh, tax decreases to property taxes in rural areas were really impacting services. So I think it was a really interesting coalition of small business, rural voters, and folks who were just generally concerned about uh, the, the, the decrease in services that lower, constantly lowering property taxes meant.
0: And in our reporting on the Gallagher repeal, we heard from local officials who would now like to see the state give them more control over property tax rates.
3: Is that something you think lawmakers will consider? I think there are going to be a lot of proposals uh, put forward, a lot of different ideas and a lot of discussion. I think more local control for uh, you know, each county or a more regional approach. Basically, what's happened is with the repeal of Gallagher, the current uh, property rates are going to stay as they are, and now the legislature will have the flexibility to, uh, to to come up with a different solution. So I think that there are going to be a lot of different ideas, and we'll see what gets flushed out. Okay, the next financial measure to hit is the small cut in the state income tax.
0: Voters also approved; it will go down from four point six three percent to five point, to, rather to four point five five percent. And that's about $40 a year for taxpayers who earn $50,000. It'll cost about $157 million annually for the state. So lots of numbers there. Put that in context for us in the
3: state budget. Will it be hard to find those cuts? So, you know, Colorado has a lot of restrictions on our state budget. Um, It can't grow faster than population plus inflation every year. Uh, We cannot deficit spend. We can't issue bonds. This will be another restriction that is going to constrain uh, our ability to fund K twelve education, higher ed, human services, and things like that. One hundred seventy million dollars out of what's around an eleven billion dollar general fund budget is a, a big hit, and uh, you know it's it's going to have an impact. And we do know the state is counting counting dollars closely as the pandemic
0: goes on, right? Um. So in this case, the state programs, it's a question of a little extra money in the sta- state's taxpayers' pocket, given all the economic stress of the pandemic. And I'm sorry, I lost you for just a minute. What was the Oh, question? OK. Um, so you mentioned, like, obviously, the state is counting dollars closely because of the pandemic. So in this case, it's a question of state programs versus a little extra money in taxpayers' pockets, given all the economic stress that people are dealing with in the pandemic.
3: Right. I think there are, you know, um, people who are hurting a lot right now because of the pandemic. This proposal is permanent, so it doesn't last just for the pandemic, which I which is one reason why I didn't support it. Um, it, It's going to go on forever in Colorado um, until voters ever vote to increase or change the state income tax, which, you know, probably isn't likely. And one thing that's interesting, the public power to vote on taxes is
0: in the state constitution. The power to vote on fees will just be a new state law. The legislature could overturn that with a simple majority. Will your caucus try to do that?
3: I think Proposition 117, which you're referring to, that puts a limit on the legislature's ability to create state enterprises, which are basically state-run businesses, uh, you know, it there's a lot that we do now through enterprises, and I don't think that the legislature, it, there's all, there might all need to be some legislation to fix things around the corners, or, you know, around the sort of sides of the legislation, but no, I don't think that there will be an effort to repeal this. So let's step back now. If I'm a taxpayer sitting
0: at home, are the three things voters passed, the income tax, the algorithm repeal, and the power to vote on fees a good deal or a bad deal from your point of view?
3: Well, I, you know, it, it really depends on your perspective. I think that the re, Prop 117, which, you know, passed narrowly, uh, is would, would prevent us from doing a lot of the things that we've done recently, like, um, you know, create a fee on urban hospitals to support rural hospitals. And, you know, that's something that's been really successful across Colorado um, or to expand the opportunity for for Coloradans to join Medicaid. Um, recently, we we created a fee enterprise that um, for for polluters who are um, who are who are polluting, polluting air quality, um, you know, those fees are going to go into cleaning the air. So, so those are things that in the future we may not be able to do. I personally don't think that's a great deal for for Coloradans, and we'll see what restrictions it really creates. I think it's a mixed bag, and you know, I I think that um, we'll just have to see how it all works out. I think you know, one thing that's interesting is voters strongly supported Prop EE, which is the the vaping and nicotine tax. Um, that passed overwhelmingly. That will create a uh, short-term help to our K-12 budget. And then we'll provide early childhood education. I think that's really exciting. I think that's going to be a benefit to Coloradans um, all across the, the state. Right. So there's a lot to look forward to see how these
0: manifest in the future. Speaker, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Avery.
0: Colorado House Speaker Casey Becker is a Democrat from Boulder. She's term-limited and won't be returning to the legislature next year. The blue wave of Democratic wins didn't materialize nationally, but on a statewide level, Colorado once again voted overwhelmingly for Democrats. That leaves many of the state's Republican Party wondering what its place is here. Republican strategist Ryan Lynch of Denver is the former executive director of the state GOP. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Avery. Before we get into the state level view, the Trump campaign has questioned election integrity for months now and has filed lawsuits to stop the counting that continues in some undecided states where he's currently in the lead. Shouldn't all the votes be counted first and then contested?
4: Yes. And I've had a problem with uh, that type of rhetoric coming out of Republicans for a while. Um, I, I think what a lot of them don't realize is that when uh, when they question election security, really, all they're doing is disenfranchising their own voters. And so, um, I, I think, you know, before the election, that really was outside of our interest to continue to uh, to say that, because if you don't think your vote's going to count, you're you're probably not going to vote. Um And I think that carries over now after the election as we're counting. Uh, we need to let the process play out. If anything, needs to be challenged there are avenues to do so in a state
0: that's becoming less and less purple and more blue is what the president's saying making your job as a republican strategist in colorado more difficult
4: oftentimes yes
0: among colorado voters joe biden defeated president trump by 14 percentage points that's almost triple hillary clinton's win in colorado in 2016 is that surprising at all
4: no this will be our fourth consecutive presidential loss in colorado Uh, President Trump uh, was and is widely unpopular in this state, so I don't think uh, the outcome of that race was too unexpected.
0: Another unsurprising outcome was the Senate race. What does Senator Cory Gardner's defeat tell us about the GOP statewide?
4: It it tells us that we have uh, a a pretty big hole to dig ourselves out of. Um, Cory Gardner is a good man, a very effective legislator, uh, he got along with everybody, including, at least before the election, John Hickenlooper, Jared Polis, Michael Bennett. Uh, Corey's loss is going to be felt hard by Republicans. Um, we've lost our, our voice. Uh, we've lost our face of, of the Colorado Republican Party, certainly from public office. And hopefully uh, this isn't the end for Corey. Um, but uh, we have uh, we have serious problems that we need to face. Um Right now, there's a lot of finger-pointing going on, but, and, I, and I guess that's not unexpected, but it's also not very productive. Uh, instead, we need to be doing a thorough postmortem of the election, figuring out what we did right, which was probably very little, um, what we did wrong, uh, and, and how we can improve. We need to be asking ourselves who we are, uh, where we're going, what we want, and how we're going to get there. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it probably starts uh, right now. Um, we're going to be reorganizing our county parties come February. We need to rebuild that apparatus. We need effective people uh, in in county leadership. They in turn need to uh, install effective people uh, at the precinct and and district captain level. Uh, then that goes all the way up to the the state party. Um, we also need to improve on our messaging. Um, and I think especially we need to improve our, our candidate recruitment and our training. Um, if, we, uh, if we allow this to get any worse, uh, it, it's uh, I, I don't know that we'll ever be able to come back. Um, you know, this is especially important when you consider the fact that we're going into redistricting here next year. Uh, we're going to gain a congressional seat, and so the congressional districts will be redrawn. Uh, and then the uh, legislative districts will all likely be redrawn as well. And so you know we in addition to all the statewide elected offices that are up in twenty two, we may have a dozen or more competitive races uh, at the legislative level. So we need to get ahead of this now and uh, and and we need to be strong going into 2022.
0: As you think about how the GOP could gain traction in Colorado, describe the sort of Colorado voter you think could be persuaded to vote Republican who doesn't now. And what sort of evidence do you have that they're out there?
4: Well, so I guess to President Trump's credit, he did a very effective job bringing in, um, you know, middle class, the working class, uh, often union workers, uh, manufacturing workers. Uh, Now, that's especially evident four years ago when he won the Rust Belt. In Colorado, it was evident when he won uh, Pueblo, which is probably the closest thing we have in Colorado to uh, a manufacturing center. So we need to uh, hold on to the gains that that President Trump made there. Um, in addition, and I don't think we've really seen final numbers, but it looks like he has done better with uh, with minority groups, minority voters, Um than any other Republican has in in probably in 60 years. And so we need to find a way to hold on to those voters as well. But the flip side of it is we lost a lot of support among particularly suburban women. Um, So we need to find a way to hold on to the gains that we've made uh, and then recover the losses that we've suffered.
0: And many eyes were on the race in the 3rd Congressional District, which Republican newcomer Lauren Boebert won. She'd been endorsed by President Trump. Additionally, incumbent Republicans Ken Buck and Doug Lamborn won re-election to their House seats. Where do you see Trump helping and hurting your party in Colorado?
4: Well, clearly he he helped to some extent on the Western Slope. I mean, it was already, uh, Congressional District 3 was already red. Um, and, and it looks like, and I don't know what the final spread's going to be, but Lauren Boebert performed at um a- at the registration margin. So uh maybe unaffiliated voters broke slightly toward Diane Mitchbush, but um you know I-, I know that there were there was some concern out there that um that that the rhetoric coming out of her campaign was going to uh damage not just uh, our ability to win that race, but but other races around the state. Uh I think Myself and, and many other Republicans were um, troubled by that rhetoric. I don't think there's any room for for dangerous conspiracy theories within the Republican Party. Uh, but I think the consensus is that we'll give Lauren the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she'll, uh, you know, maybe she'll thrive in D.C. Maybe she'll work hard, um, keep her keep her head down, um, build relationships, and uh, and uh, be an effective leader for. Uh, for, for the western slope.
0: Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: Ryan Lynch is the former Colorado GOP Executive Director, here to talk about the state of the Republican Party after Tuesday's election. Communities across the state are starting to impose new protocols to try to combat a rising number of COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. And the state of Colorado has now changed the way it classifies the seriousness of the pandemic. CPR health reporter John Daly continues to closely track developments with the virus. Hi, John. Good morning, Avery. John, where are we in the course of the pandemic?
5: Well, public health officials say we've entered a clear third wave of illness, of cases and hospitalizations. This is not good news on a variety of fronts, and virtually every gauge state and local health leaders watch closely is headed in the wrong direction. Basically, they're talking about hitting ICU capacity as soon as next month. That's basically the ability to care for all the sickest patients at the level needed. Things are bad in terms of the spread of the, the disease as they were in the spring, maybe even worse.
0: Can you give us some context? How does this compare to the cases Colorado that we're seeing, that we were seeing at the start of the pandemic?
5: Well, the case numbers are up. We have a lot more testing now, too. Uh, Public health officials yesterday said that cases are up with all ages and more younger people are being hospitalized now than in the spring. And we should also keep in mind that we know that numbers are up all over the country.
0: How does what's happening in Colorado compare to other states?
5: Well, you know, for a comparison, Avery, take a look at our neighbors in Utah. They're seeing a big spike in transmission, cases, hospitalizations. They're warning about having to implement what are called crisis standards of care. Basically, that's a decision-making process. Or Some have talked about it like rationing care, where a scoring system helps decide who gets what care, Utah is approaching that. Colorado is not, not yet, but public health leaders and doctors here say that's exactly what we want to avoid.
0: Governor Jared Polis has said the number he keeps an eye on is whether hospitals could be overwhelmed. Where do we stand on that?
5: Well, he and the public health officials say we could hit that point by the end of December or early January if the spread of the disease continues at its current pace. But look, this can be avoided, they say, if communities, families and individuals really uh, abide by public health guidelines on mask wearing, social distancing. And they're strongly urging really limiting gatherings severely. Who you see, who you hang out with, especially indoors. Those settings are really ripe for spreading the virus, you know, which is so easily transmissible if you're not following the guidelines.
0: So much has evolved in our knowledge since this began. Doctors and researchers especially have learned a lot, although they acknowledge that there are still a lot of unknowns with the virus. What kind of preparations have hospitals made since the spring to be able to handle a surge this winter?
5: Well, they've made a lot of progress. The good news is that hospitals, their leaders, their staff, frontline providers have been planning for this for months. Remember, we flattened the curve in the spring and summer in Colorado, and that bought Colorado time to prepare. And that means everything from stocking up on personal protective gear to reconfiguring, rewiring, retubing hospital rooms to handle more patients and to move them around. And also just yesterday, the state's hospitals announced they're launching a new system to coordinate moving patients between hospitals. This will allow the whole system to work together to transfer patients around, avoid overwhelming hospitals. That's especially key with the smaller rural hospitals that could easily get overwhelmed if they saw a lot of cases also, doctors say they, they really know a lot more about this virus and how to treat it.
0: Tell me more about that. What kinds of treatments are hospitals using now?
5: Well, you might have heard in the news things like uh, stories about antiviral medications like remdesivir. Also, there's a, sto- a steroid called dexamethasone, and those are thought to better help treat patients They've also got really good at using high flow oxygen and knowing when and how much and using it to delay or maybe even prevent uh, putting a patient on a ventilator. Uh, They've really learned a lot about what's called proning. So that's moving a patient from laying them on their back to their stomach to help improve breathing. And doctors say that COVID-19 patients in Colorado are now less likely to go on a ventilator and to, and it's and they're spending less time on one than they did at the start of the pandemic and that's all thanks to those various kind of treatments and medications I was just talking about.
0: That's good news. Where does the state stand on supplies of PPE for healthcare workers?
5: Well, as I was saying, by flattening the curve, hospitals and health systems had time to stockpile PPE and improve supply lines and their internal protocols But still, 4% of hospitals anticipate a shortage of PPE in the next week. And with cases rising sharply around the U.S. and also in Europe, the potential for a PPE crunch at some point is is definitely still there and plus remember we've got nursing homes and primary care providers first responders many others that uh, teachers that need PPE as well
0: and Denver mayor Michael Hancock went political recently when he blamed the rise in COVID-19 cases on people who still refuse to believe in science and those who do not take it seriously how frustrating is this for healthcare workers
5: Well, those I've spoken with are totally frustrated, really disheartened by this. They understand the science behind the spread of the virus and know, based on research going back decades, that common sense public health measures do work to limit the spread. When people don't do that and even openly defy those measures, they see the consequences in very real terms in terms of the people who end up in the hospital, who they treat, at the risk of their own health. So yeah, I'd say pretty frustrated.
0: You've actually reported quite a bit on the toll the pandemic has taken on frontline healthcare workers. How are they faring with this latest surge?
5: Well, you know, in a word, they're exhausted. This has been a long haul already, and they know that the winter months are still ahead. There's a lot of concern for both the physical health and the mental health of these frontline providers and concerns about morale and staffing. Some providers, of course, have themselves gotten sick with COVID-19. All of this takes its toll. Uh, But they've also told me they're hanging in there. They they greatly appreciate the many expressions of support they've gotten from folks in the community to a person. They've also said that if you really want to show providers you care, then the best way to do that is to avoid getting sick or passing the virus to someone else. And that's something I've heard from COVID-19 survivors, too. One of them is Jason Jahanian. Uh, he was uh, hospitalized on a ventilator in the spring. He said it makes sense to take steps to protect yourself and the community and prevent more people from ending up in hospitals.
1: Well, my whole feeling is why not? It's a really minimal impact to the individual to wear a mask and have some social distancing. I just really think people should really stick to it.
0: This week, the state issued a new public health order, making it clear that local public health and school district officials will decide whether students should attend class in person or online. What's the thinking about that, especially now?
5: Well, the state's epidemiologist, Rachel Hurley, he talked about that yesterday. She said transmission among children really varies by age group. There's a big difference between elementary schools and high schools and younger students that case numbers and outbreaks uh, occurring, occurring in schools are smaller. She said the state is more likely to see staff. Uh, um, involved in those outra- outbreaks. But the story is really different when you look at high school students. She said uh, you see more students and a larger number of staff involved in outbreaks. And remember that elementary school in elementary schools, it's much easier to, to cohort one group of kids in one class. And a key factor of all this, too, is that older students may be potentially spreading the virus in gatherings like parties outside of school. Uh, Hurley said that the state has seen an increase in outbreaks. uh, They have seen an increase of outbreaks occurring in schools, but that may really reflect the level of community transmission that's occurring. It's really all being watched very closely, of course.
0: Something else the state is working on is how to communicate the seriousness of the pandemic. Can you talk about the safety dial?
5: Sure. You may have seen this on the state's website. Uh, The state is shifting towards letting counties take more of the lead in response to the coronavirus. And Colorado has now changed the way it classifies the seriousness of the pandemic. And the biggest change, a a new public health order released Monday, makes clear that local public health and school district officials will decide whether students should attend in-person classes and virtual lessons online. And that's based on local factors. The new rules also are an attempt to declutter the five-step color-coded matrix, classifying the severity of the outbreak in different counties. Instead of having three different levels of safer-at-home status, the dial will now classify Local conditions simply as green, blue, yellow, orange, and red, with, of course, red being the the worst.
0: And by way of example, Boulder County moves to safer at home, orange level Friday. This essentially cuts back capacity to 25 percent for business. It's the second highest level of restrictions. The city of Denver went to level orange last week, and it's reportedly considering a curfew now as well. Do you sense this is just the beginning?
5: Uh, It sure is. If the numbers stay high, Colorado's top health officials said yesterday that 18 counties are now seeing transmission levels that could lead to the most restrictive level. Of course, that stay at home. Uh, The state's chief medical officer said local leaders have to put new restrictions in place starting now, including limits on gatherings and curfews like one that was ordered last week in Pueblo and Avery, they're already happening. The health department yesterday notified Boulder and Broomfield and Jefferson counties that in the next few days, they'd be moved to that orange level, formerly level three, again, one step away from stay at home in that dial framework. Uh, The governor and public health officials said that they know how tough these restrictions are. They know that people are tired, that there's a lot of COVID-19 fatigue, but that the tools That we have are pretty much the same as months ago. They're pretty blunt. And we know from experience, the less everyone interacts, the more those cases will drop and that'll protect the hospitals.
0: Thanksgiving is just a few weeks away, kicking off what's traditionally a busy holiday season. Do you have a sense of whether this is affecting people's travel plans?
5: You know, I think it is. A number of people I've talked with, including a number of doctors and epidemiologists, uh, have told me that they're reconsidering what their plans are. Uh, to a person, those uh, medical folks I've talked to say they are changing their Thanksgiving plans. That means they're not traveling. They're not planning on getting together with other families. Many are planning to use that twenty twenty most 2020 of all things, the, the Zoom call. To a person, they say they're just too concerned about how widespread this virus is in our state, at least, uh, to take that chance. Thanks, John. You bet.
0: CPR health reporter John Daly tracking the current increase in COVID-19 cases and how communities in Colorado are responding. You can follow our regular coverage of the coronavirus pandemic on air and online at CPR.org. Imagine if this year was your first time voting in a presidential election amidst a pandemic and unusually high political tension. 18 to 34-year-olds make up more than a quarter of Colorado's voters this year. Colorado Matters producer Allie Budner asked several first-time voters to share their feelings about this election and their role in it. They're all students from Colorado College
2: in Colorado Springs. Lindsay Gulau is a freshman from Fort Collins. She submitted her ballot at a drop box in her hometown when she was there during a school break. It was honestly like a life-changing experience um, because I've always watched the election and known that I didn't really have a say. So it was really, really exciting to watch this and know that it was like me and my peers who were making that happen. She voted for Biden in hopes of moving the country in a more progressive direction. Because it's so close right now, it's kind of nerve-wracking, um, but it's kind of exciting that it's so close. It's I'm definitely like on the edge of my seat, and it's kind of hard to not know when you're going to know if that makes sense. Sangye Mingyur is also a freshman. His family is from Nepal, and he grew up in New York, but his family lives in Boulder now. He went home a few weeks ago to drop off his ballot. Voting was easy for him, but watching the returns on election night, he said, made him nervous.
3: Now this morning I'm feeling pretty optimistic about the
1: mail-in votes that have still not been fully counted yet.
2: He wants to see more money go to education. He said he's disturbed that the president claimed victory prematurely.
3: You should respect the process and it's not over yet until all the votes have been counted.
2: Freshman Eve Stewart voted by mail and wants to know her voice is being counted. She's most recently from Arizona, but she grew up in Pennsylvania, both swing states this year. Her family members voted for Trump in 2016, but they changed allegiances this year because of how the president has handled the coronavirus. It's making me realize how far we've come just like as a family in our political ideology. As for Stewart, she says she would have liked to vote for a third party, but because of the worsening pandemic, she wanted to use her leverage to try to unseat the president. For me, the excitement of voting for Biden was just that, like, perhaps then scientists would be given, like, just baseline credibility and respect. That's something I didn't even think would ever be a question in politics, but has apparently become one. She's feeling a bit anxious as she waits for the final results, but she's hopeful about the youth vote. You know, we're often painted as really apathetic, but I think at this point that apathy has turned into anger, and I think that anger is a really powerful thing.
0: Colorado Matters producer Allie Budner speaking with first-time voters at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. KRCC, which is part of Colorado Public Radio, is licensed to Colorado College. When we come back, bicycling through history on the western slope. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
4: For years, Lookout Mountain has been the place to see what's happening throughout the Front Range. Hi, I'm Daniel J. Schneider, editor of the daily CPR newsletter, which takes its name and inspiration from that mountain. The Lookout. Each weekday, The Lookout gives you a closer look at issues that affect Colorado. Every edition highlights top stories, conversations, and other important news, as well as some fun and quirky stuff. Sign up to get The Lookout each weekday in your inbox at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Cyclists are usually focused on what's ahead, on the road or the trail, but Grand Junction bike store owner and avid cyclist Chris Brown prefers to look backwards. He's a cycling history buff. He has a bicycle museum in his Brown Cycles shop, and he recently published a historical fiction book called Bicycle Junction. The book takes readers through 140 years of the Grand Valley's cycling-related past. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Over the years, you've collected boxes of Grand Junction cycling photos and memorabilia. What made you think, there's a book here?
1: Um, People keep giving me pieces and parts and collections and things and pictures and articles and stories. And I wanted to sew them all together so you could read them in one chunk just for interest. And so for the last 10 years, I've been trying to figure out how to do that. And so we sat down about five years ago and, and were able to put it all together.
0: Tell me a little bit about what's in those boxes. What kind of memorabilia have people been giving you?
1: Uh, They give me family heirlooms, like gold watches, uh, trophies from 1928, uh, newspaper clippings of their great-grandfathers on bicycles downtown, like the actual photos. And I'm kind of surprised that they're willing to give this stuff up, but they do. And I feel honored by that, so I want to preserve it, and I want to reflect it somehow, some way, and and honor those memories and those stories.
0: You're a keeper of this history. Now, Bicycle Junction, it doesn't follow a straight path for historical fiction. It has a sci-fi element of time travel with a fictitious, unnamed narrator riding a strange bike through 14 decades of Grand Junction's actual history. Without giving too much of your story away, tell us a little bit about the bike your protagonist rides and just give us a taste of the journey it takes him on.
1: Right. So the only way you could tie these things together was um, break it up by decades which is what I did and then I created a bike that would ride through those decades so it it became a time machine of sorts and um but we actually physically built it as well and so you can actually see this thing and ride it
0: what does it look like
1: we wanted it to be antiquated so that it was historically old but at the same time futuristically kind of charming and so It's steel. It's got leather seats and cork grips, which is traditional. It's single speed, which is traditional. But the turning points are actually in the middle of the frame. And so it's something that you might find 10 years or 20 years down the
4: road.
0: And you've actually used those photographs that people have given you. There are more than 400 historical photographs in this book. How did those photos inspire your characters?
1: So we laid the photos out chronologically in time, and then we just wove a story through the photos talking about the people and the ancestry and the history of, of Grand Junction, which ties back to those photos. So a lot of our um, ancestors in Grand Junction, that the streets and buildings are named after, are actually on those bicycles doing those races and, and competing and, and socializing.
0: And tell me about Ethel Carson.
1: Ethel Carson, uh, the first Harley-Davidson bike shop, uh, one of the first, uh, turn of the century, is actually... Um, 1914-ish, and then her husband ends up dying of the uh, Spanish flu in 1918. But anyway, so he had the swin shop in town, and Ethel Carson was his wife. Most of the people in Grand Junction came from Kansas and Nebraska at the turn of the century, and so she was from there. So she's just kind of this old traditional pioneer frontiers woman, you know, good wife that fell into this tragic loss with her husband passing away.
0: And Ethel Carson was one of those characters that you developed based on the photographs. What from her photographs drew you in?
1: Um, it's amazing how you can look at a picture and draw inferences on people. And her family all over this valley. And so I was able to get to them and uh, have conversations with them about her. She passed away in 1972. And they gave me the affirmation, yeah, you're spot on. You you can take pictures and look at things and, and make judgment calls on it and then um feel pretty good about what you've come up with. What did she look like in her photos? She wore high leather boots, two-inch heels, always had a cigarette in her hand, the white gloves, boots were laced up. Pretty traditional turn of the century. But in a desert town, none of that stuff really works very well in our deep sand. <laughs> so <laughs> she was modern in all senses of the word, but in a, in a weird place to be modern.
0: Yeah, she sounds like quite a woman. You throw out a word at the beginning of your book, prosopography, to describe your approach to history. What does that mean? And how does it fit into a book about cycling?
1: Right. So if you take your ancestry kin and talk about the culture and what they did and how they acted and kind of everything surrounding that, that's what prosopography means. And so it was really kind of a a study on how people socialized, got along, what they did for fun, what they did for work, as well as uh, tying the cycling with that. And then just the culture of Grand Junction of how it developed and how it grew.
0: Did you have a particular audience in mind when you wrote this book?
1: I had three. Um, The older folks in Grand Junction will get this stuff because they wrote in those bicycle parades in the 50s and things like that. Uh, Cyclists will get this because we have included trail maps, current ones, in the book. And so they'll sort of, of key into that. And then my third audience was some kid 100 years from now that just wants to know what cycling was like in Grand Junction 100 years ago.
0: I really like that. You also weave in some interesting historical tidbits into this book that don't really have anything to do with cycling, like the fact that they used to keep a caged lion in the city park. There was once a Miss Atomic Energy pageant, or the winner went home with a pickup load of radioactive uranium ore. Some of those things sound stranger than fiction. Are they all true?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that's fiction in this book is the character that rides through it. All the conversations, people, places are actual history of Grand Junction things. So, yeah.
0: And some of the stranger things in your book, they are related to cycling. and They include a local bike gang that used to fill their tires with buttermilk. Tell us about the Buttermilk Boys.
1: The Buttermilk Boys. We currently put uh, latex in our tires. So if we get flat tires, they seal up instantly, we can keep riding. But at the turn of the century, they would do the same with buttermilk. And so it would coagulate and sour. And then if you got thorns or carpet tacks from the upholstery from the buggies, which happened a lot in that sand, it would just seal up and you could keep riding as well.
0: But it, <laughs> it smelled great
1: too. So it smelled great. Occasionally those tires would burst or break off and coat people on the street with um, sour buttermilk. how oh, gross.
0: <laughs> um, Grand Junction is known as a popular town for cyclists with the famous Tour of the Moon Ride over the Colorado National Monument, lots of mountain bike trails, and the much anticipated opening this fall of the Palisade Plunge. And that's a trail that will take riders to the top of the Grand Mesa to the town of Palisade. Is this the golden age of cycling in your area, or was cycling even more popular at some time in the past?
1: From my perspective, it was probably the 80s, but anybody that's you know wasn't here or, or unfamiliar with that it would probably say it's happening now with all those things you just mentioned. So the 1980s was a, the golden era of cycling from my perspective because everything that was happening, the mountain bike came out in 1981, which was a, a huge change in the cycling industry. In Grand Junction proper, the Coors Classic was going on. So if you remember Bernard Enault or Greg LeMond or... Kind of Carpenter, Davis Finney, they were all riding over here on that Tour of the Moon ride, um, staying in Grand Junction for three or four days and doing all that same time. So you had different genres and different years all happening in this little town at the same time that had world uh, ramifications tied to them. So these it was a global thing, which is pretty amazing. Golden Ages are interesting. It seems to be whatever you were when you were 14.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Whenever it was best for you, that's the Golden Age. <laughs> Correct. Um, Your own life, it's also, you've had some book-worthy adventures, like riding your bike from Colorado to New York State to visit your grandmother when you were in high school. How did bikes become your life's passion and your livelihood and now you're springboard into fiction?
1: There you go. It's really your first taste of freedom. Everybody has a bike story. Everybody. People that don't even cycle have bike stories. And so it's great common ground if you want to get a group of people together and, and just meet people and talk.
0: And you mentioned the trail guides that are in your book. Bicycle Junction, it's sort of a how-to for today's cyclists. It's got those maps and route descriptions for 14 rides. You challenge your readers to do those rides. How big of an undertaking is that challenge?
1: So there's a ride in every chapter. Every chapter represents a decade. And then at the end of every chapter is a current trail map of that ride. So if you did all those rides in that book, you would be about 1,879 miles and the idea is that you could actually ride through this book. You could read a chapter and then go do the thing and then come home and ride and read another chapter and then do another one.
0: That is a lot of miles. Have you ridden all those?
1: Yeah, I've ridden all those. It would take about a year for a guy to do that.
0: Tell me a little bit about, I think you called it the one bike challenge. Do you've got a sticker for your bike frame for completing it?
1: Yeah, if you complete that 1,800 miles, I'll, I'll make you a free mug you can use for bragging rights. And I have a sticker that you can put on your frame to tell people and show people what you've done.
0: That's pretty great. Well, Chris, I want to thank you so much for sharing about your
1: book. Thank you.
0: Chris Brown owns Brown's Cycles in Grand Junction. He recently published a historical fiction book called Bicycle Junction that's based on a true story of bicycles in Grand Valley. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the team for help that helps bring this show to air. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek, producers Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Carla Jimenez... Ali Budner, Alexander McMahon, and Paolo Scholzada. Thanks also to Nancy Lofholm. Along with my co host Ryan Warner, I'm Avery Lill. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. Again, that's Play the Podcast Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.